0: You're listening to BitBytes. Bit Bites. Thanks for joining us. So it's been a while since we've had a guest. We are proud to have
1: Brian with us today. Hello. Welcome Brian. Hello. Got my Mario socks on for the occasion. I don't know if the camera can pick that up. Where's the camera, by the way? There's no uh, p- camera. This is a podcast, Brian.
0: I have it's not my a video podcast.
2: Cameras that I'm seeing, and I can confirm that he is indeed wearing Mario I'm socks. I'm still
3: getting paid, right? No one told him. We'll
1: talk about it at craft services later.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah.
3: Brian is joining us A, because he's a good friend, but B, because he's a big nerd. And there's been much uh, conversation between us about the video games, got wind of the podcast. And he's like, he didn't outright say it, but he's pretty much like, put me on there. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're here today. Well, let's give the audience a breakdown. What's your history
0: with video games? When did you start playing? What were your consoles? What's your favorite games?
1: Great question. I'm happy you asked. When the Super Nintendo first came out, my neighbor got it and gave me their... NES. And I had, you know, the Mario Duck Hunt, the Jungle Book game, the some hockey game, a couple other games. Other than that, I always played friends' video game systems. I'd never owned a video game system of my own. I had played a bunch of computer games growing up, like Pitfall and um, Descent and uh, SimCity, stuff like that. It wasn't until... The Xbox and the GameCube came out that I really invested my money into video game systems. I'm a uh, hardcore casual gamer. Like, I play video games like every day, but I'm not very serious about it.
0: I mean, you were just describing how serious you are with Mario Kart battles with your wife.
1: I'm not the serious one. That's my <laughs> wife. She's the one that's super serious about it. Yeah. But we do play, we do play a lot of, uh, Mario Kart and Nintendo games are kind of a a vector for us to play together because when I was growing up I did a lot of like the Command and Conquer, Counter-Strike, the like Land Party stuff, Halo when all that came out, Halo 1, 2, and 3 was really big into that but nowadays it's much more low-key and like Nintendo stuff.
3: I feel like you are probably really enjoying the current suite of available hardware and software and stuff because it feels like it's the golden age of the casual hardcore or the Mm -hmm. the hardcore casual. Which one is it? I'm hardcore casual. Hardcore casual. Yeah. Yeah, because like the Switch, it's portable. Yeah. But it doesn't have like the pitfalls of earlier hardware where it has these limitations and stuff. It's like you can kind of do everything in one. Well, Brian, thank you for... Uh, sharing with us. We're glad you're here because your wealth of experience is a little bit different than the rest of us. I feel like that's like a nice thing about uh, the conversations that we usually have is that we all have a slightly different take on things. And I started with SNES as well, but in a completely different way. I was probably in diapers and you were not, hopefully not in diapers. No, nope, I'm a little bit older than you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it should make for interesting conversation. Brian and I were having a conversation before about the mystery of sequels and prequels and how on the tails of a very successful entry in any franchise or just a standalone game, there's this incredible pressure to uh, perform again. And it's a unique experience relative to like a passion project where something just happens to resonate with a bunch of people and reach them. Um, You know, when you make it big, how do you follow up on that and have success? So I, in tandem with everyone, had kind of like thrown some stuff against the wall in terms of like high level things to think about. So I kind of wanted to walk through this stuff really quickly. I'll share and then we can get into some case studies, like talking about specific games and like how great they are, how not great they are when it comes to sequels. So people who are into gaming or work in creative industries of any kind are probably very aware of the amount of documentation that goes into production. Like when you're working on large scale projects, you got to write everything down. You got a rough draft and rough draft and draft that draft over and over and over again. And because of the complexity of video games, you know, it's all these different kinds of media coming together into a single project. So it's like, you know, I can't imagine anything in terms of scope that it'd be more important to have that uh, documentation. So what a lot of game companies have evolved in terms of their uh, process is right from the get-go, they create this game design document. So large-scale company being like Nintendo... Ubisoft, those kind of like massive publishers, they'll create this document that's like a massive like vision piece, a pre-production of kind of setting the idea and the concept and the genre, stories and characters, core game mechanics, gameplay, art and sketches and monetization. It's all kind of getting laid out right up front so that they can kind of think through like pitfalls and uh, how they're going to work through all this stuff to create this game. It's a lot of like moving parts and different departments and things kind of working in tandem, so. It's their Bible. It is. It is their Bible. So if you're coming off the heels of a successful project, of course, all of this is helpful. Like it always is. It's just good practice. You know, for a good sequel, all of these kind of things that are involved in the game design document should be revisited, at least in our opinion, when it comes to a follow-up. I was thinking about, oh, it makes a good sequel versus not a good
0: sequel. I think you see so many instances of like, Oh, the first game was great. And you know, the company's like, we're just going to do the exact same thing (laughs) and just like, you know, add new challenges
1: or
2: whatever. Borderlands three. Which one? Borderlands Borderlands
1: three. That's fascinating because that's what I like. And I always feel like I see more of the opposite, which drives me nuts where they just change everything. (laughs) And it's like, the game is like lost to me. So that's fascinating.
0: Well, that's just like, it's the balance, right? Yeah. Like you need enough new things to make it considered a different game, but yeah. like people want to play sequels of games because they like the previous installments. So it's really finding that balance. So, you know, I would like to refer to this as a brand guide instead of a Bible, but <laughs> <laughs> essentially like, you know, what things in that original brand guide would made the original a success. What should we
3: carry over? What do we need to evolve? So when it comes to like modern game development, there's this intentional decision. Are we going to do the cutting edge thing? And the example here is Death Stranding. So like try to push tech as far as it can go. Extreme complexity, lots of different systems working together. High graphical fidelity, trying to like emulate realism or some very demanding kind of taxing visual design. Or you can do something that's more committed to like Shovel Knight is a good example of the opposite where they create boundaries for themselves and then they kind of use that as the creative space. There's this other kind of thing that's at play too. And I'm really interested to know what everybody thinks about this, but uh, there's this kind of like, not necessarily with the bigger studios, I wouldn't imagine. I don't have a behind the scenes look into this, but there's this kind of like well-known meme with music artists where like they, when they do their first project and they don't have any money and they're just doing it in their garage, you know, they'll produce their first mixtape and sometimes that's their best work. And it's because it's created in this like condition. I don't know if you guys are familiar with like the Beastie Boys story, but like they got a bunch of money and resources and stuff. It actually ended up screwing them up, like being in the studio and stuff. And they moved back to the Bronx and like worked out of a dingy little apartment because that yielded like, you know, that's what made their stuff work, I guess. So the context versus like later on in your career, you make it you get the contract and then you're like expected to perform and sometimes that like we're demanding it of you doesn't necessarily yield the best results.
0: It's sort of hard to recreate though in the game industry, I think, because like what happens when you get an indie success? Normally the studio, if they're up for it, gets bought by a larger game developer. And then they expect them to recreate that what that lightning in a bottle game. <laughs> they they want the sequel. <laughs> Um, But there's even more pressure now because if you don't get the success that you got on the first one, there's the chance of like, you get either put on a completely different game or the studio gets shuttered. Like, yeah, it's sort of really hard to walk away. And it really takes those initial indie developers to just say like, no, I don't want to be bought. This was a one time thing or we want to do our own thing without the corporate conditions being placed on them.
2: Oh, I have a perfect example of that kind of situation. Um, Crystal Dynamics with the Avengers. <laughs>
3: Not exactly a success You did story. such a great
2: job on <laughs> Tomb Raider. We want you to make a superhero game where you fly around. You don't have rope and actual physical things that we use in the world. We're going to use <laughs> magic and lasers and all that stuff. So it should be a good game, right? Yeah, perfect translation. Can you
3: imagine right now the pressure that people who work for Bethesda Studios have, or people who are working on like the latest, you know, Activision IP have right now with all these acquisitions and stuff? I would imagine that, like Microsoft buying up all these companies and stuff, it's like, I really wonder how that is for the actual developers working there if they're under more pressure or if it's is going to be a little bit more lax because they have the padding of all the resources. I don't know.
0: (laughs) And you're referring to the recent acquisition,
3: right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of the case if you're like in a mid to large size studio, that's probably always the dynamic, but like this changing of hands and stuff, it's, I would be really interested to know if it intensifies the pressure.
0: I don't know. It's like, as a creative, if I'm asked to do a follow-up and create another successful video in my case, but like, I, I need the, the freedom. I like the heavy expectations for me personally are like, it's really restrictive. And I don't know, sometimes I feel like those first games come out of a place cause no one's expecting it. No, like right. no, even audience, like fandoms and like fans of these games can be so intense when it comes to and they'll put it out there like we need to see this, that, this and that and it's like okay um, I don't think that's the best uh, recipe for a successful game
2: But I do feel really bad because like for developers and everything like E3, all those kind of things, uh, those showcases are those times for the biggest platform for all these to either secure funding or um, get people excited about what they're doing, and because that motivates, you know, the studios that are building these games, and then to show something like very recently Halo Infinite,
1: mm-hmm.
2: very lukewarm reception uh, when it uh, debuted last year. Before coming out this year and they delayed the game. It was a whole, whole thing. I'm sure a lot of you probably know.
1: Yeah, I'm playing that right now. Oh. In terms of a sequel, how do you feel about it? That's interesting. I think, so I unashamedly love the first trilogy and I've had fun with the second trilogy, but I, I don't like it at all. And I think it's a good example of Halo 1, 2, and 3 improved upon themselves but they kept a lot of the core stuff and obviously that's Bungie Um, and it's fantastic and it's great and then Halo 4 came out and it was like trying to be Call of Duty or something I don't know what was going on it lost so much of its DNA and it changed too much in my opinion that it wasn't like replayable or that much fun and I, I can't do the like online play with those games anymore even though I loved Halo 2 and 3 online it's just, it feels so different. Like something really got lost. Oh my
2: gosh, the forge. Like the custom yeah. maps and games and everything. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so Infinite's been interesting because there's, they tried to bring back some of that DNA that they lost. And so I can have some fun in it, but it's still too little too late
2: where's my co-op? Where's my forge? Oh, wait. Those are coming later at an unforeseen yeah. time. Yeah.
3: Yeah, we'll take your money first and then we'll talk about that <laughs> stuff later. Um, so, Brian, the Halo 4 343? Yes. So, is that is Do you attribute the, like, sequel fail in that to just be a developer change? or?
1: That's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I feel like... I, I honestly feel like maybe even if everything had stayed the same with the explosion of like your Call of Duties and Battlefield, all of those games, and the competitiveness and the the hardcore gaming of it, I think kind of I think they would have gone this direction anyway because it's more focused on that than anything.
3: Yeah, would you imagine it's something along the lines of Microsoft? getting a look at their, like, game design document and not seeing enough of, like, I guess, like, what's trending? Is it, like, a risk aversion thing to try to import a bunch of very popular tropes into an existing IP so they can ensure it's successful?
1: Yeah, I think so, because the original Halo trilogy has a lot in it that is heartfelt, it feels like. There's that, like, Bible that you can, like, really feel, like instantly when you start the first halo game there's like they've put a lot of thought into this that like may not ever be discovered in like future games or books or whatever you know the franchise exploded i think that attributes to the success of it because it had all of that there and the new games feel like yeah they're very much focused on like certain types of functionality and types of like competitive gameplay and ranking mechanics well
0: bungie went on to do destiny right does Destiny feel more like new Halo or old Halo?
3: I, you know what's funny about that is like, just for me personally, relative to Halo 3 specifically was the one that I went pretty hard into. There's a lot of similarity there, not just mechanically, but like, you know, there is a certain amount of love that's put into lore and I don't necessarily resonate with the storytelling style of Destiny. It kind of like... I I don't know, I'm just not really that into it, but it is there. It is on offer. There's all like the, you know, every weapon, like custom weapon has like a description and you can, there's backstory and context for all the places that you can go to. And they have like all of the expansions have quite a bit of like story uh, content to them that kind of expands the world and interconnects characters and all of that stuff. So... It is interesting because Destiny is very much about like, you know, PvP, but it's also, I would say it's more about PvE. So for an online game, I think it it is more, maybe, I don't know. What do you think, George? Is it more in line with the original Halo trilogy in that way or? I
2: mean, I think there's elements that have been brought over because that, to me, Bungie is Halo. Yeah. Um and now they've kind of it's been some time since they've been with Halo but they created Halo they've you know there's a lot of uh gamers out there that you know have such a close tie and connection to correlation with Bungie and Halo. There are elements of Halo being it's a sci-fi shooter. There's you know alien races um that you're fighting against, but there's still it's like if Halo had become an open MMO thing which is kind of what halo infinite was trying to do
1: with hook shots <laughs> i do like the hook shot
3: <laughs> i think it's so fun i freaking love it like it's one of those things that they change so like uh sonic mania as an example yep they have that mechanic now where you can charge up like your role and right. like spin dash from like not having any momentum and now it's like, I can't play the old games because that mechanic is so crucial to yeah, the fun factor. Yeah, because you get
1: stuck. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: Kiltacular. Killing spree. Part of like the world that we live in is that we get this like trickle feed of remakes and remasters, which yes, they are two different things, but it kind of like breathes life into things. And like, uh, it's funny that we ended up talking about this, but like that I think becomes a really crucial piece is quality of life improvements so that new audiences have access to these older titles because uh, I played Link's Awakening last year Mm -hmm. and I went back and read about the differences between the two and I haven't played the original, original release of it, but just from a visual standpoint alone, it is kind of an eyesore. I understand that it was an incredible like technical accomplishment that they were able to do that with the two-tone and stuff. But yeah, it's just, it creates uh, accessibility, which is always a good thing. So it's not really sequel or prequel material, but I don't know. I think it like creates more fertile ground for sequels and prequels for people who have an expectation set that's more modern. So it's like people who maybe have only played Breath of the Wild and then they see that Link's Awakening is out on the Switch and they're like, oh, that's a Zelda game. And because it's more palatable, it gets them in the door. And then when they play it, they're like, wait, but this game is completely different. And seeing kind of how the Zelda franchise has many, many different shapes it takes. I almost we'll see some of these like remakes, like
0: the new Pokemon, Shining mm-hmm. Shining Pearl or Brilliant Diamond, whatever.
3: Oh, uh, I the, can't wait to get, get my copy. Versions. I haven't gotten it yet.
0: And I'm like, it's sort of... What you were saying earlier, Brian, about like, I want my sequels to be just like the previous. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. Like, that's what those are to me. Like, that is the draw of like, yeah, you played these, what, 15 years ago? I don't even know how long. (laughs) But you want a fresh experience with a little bit extra. Right. There's that. Um, So I, I don't necessarily... I know a lot of people are like, oh, we're just same with movies and TV. We're just making remaking stuff. We're not making new stuff. But like if you give me enough extra polish and refinement and a few additions,
2: I'm happy with it. (laughs) Maybe some fan asks too fandom representation yeah Yeah. a
0: little bit of fandom (laughs) masks
3: i think like for me i haven't i didn't play pokemon growing up so that's actually new for me and it just it's like that thing i was saying before with Link's awakening it like makes it more palatable for modern audience
1: i can't imagine coming in to pokemon fresh they're so weird Uh, they are really weird yeah, yeah if you come in like into like sword and shield and you've never played a pokemon game before like Oh, I can't imagine how bizarre that would feel
3: it's really strange I think one of my favorite Pokemon that I ended up with at the be- at the end of Sword and Shield was like a dragon type that has little dragons that come yeah. out of its face that was my favorite that it too. uses as yep. weapons yeah. it's like okay this is normal <laughs> this is for children right yeah okay <laughs> Um, Okay, so one last real quick thing, and then we'll get into some fun case studies. So um, the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, there's this kind of like distinction in the main driving force and how games are architected. So uh, a lot of times it'll be one of two things. It'll either be auteur driven or it'll be a true collaborative effort. And so like a really easy uh, comparison here between Bioshock more like the original and infinite mm-hmm. versus Cuphead. Mm-hmm. So, I think most people are aware of this, but just filler for people who uh, are unaware. So, the Bioshock series was like groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Um, and it was the brainchild of Ken Levine. And it's this whole like criticism of Ayn Rand's philosophy is kind of the storytelling thing that's going on with it. Uh, The game itself has a lot of really interesting and unique kind of aesthetic choices and gameplay choices and stuff. But I think the story is the thing that a lot of people walk away with and remember. And so that was the first installation in Bioshock. Then they made a sequel that did not have the auteur present um, and was... In a lot of ways, I think there's this kind of consensus that Bioshock 2 is riding off of the coattails of the first game. So same setting, kind of similar mechanics. Um, I don't know. I don't want to get into it too much. It's different, but the same.
1: I would agree with Jesse's point earlier with this game. Bioshock 2 didn't feel like it had, even though it was kind of what I said I wanted out of a sequel, which is like, give me everything that I love. There was something missing in it for sure. Which is... Mostly story or mostly mechanic? It's, I don't know. There's some, like, heart and soul that goes into a game somehow. And if you do a direct clone, it's easy to, I'm, we've talked, y'all have mentioned uh, Breath of the Wild a couple of times. I'm terrified of the next Breath of the Wild game. Oh, we're
0: going to get to that. Yeah. I have thoughts.
1: <laughs> yeah, I but, <laughs> have thoughts too.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about that auteur, the um, the visionary that, you know, breathe life into it and make sure it's there in the game instead of a collective whoever, everyone who's touching a game. I mean, these games take so many people to make, but like everyone has their own idea of what it is. And that's sort of why you need that game Bible brand guide, whatever, but really having a person who is the head of it and driving it and doing those checks. Um, I think that's really necessary. What, what's, what was the development of Cuphead? Like
3: uh, so Cuphead actually in terms of vision is almost auteur, but it was a brother collaboration. So these two brothers, and then they got a team of other people around them that had expertise outside of their scope. So I think a bit more collaborative, but it's so interesting. I'm not saying that there's a correlation there. I'm not saying there's something special about auteur versus collaborative or anything, but it's just something interesting to kind of have in the back of our minds as we talk through the case studies.
0: Yeah, I- I don't know all the specific details of the development of Horizon Zero Dawn, but like from all the like behind the scene things I've read about it, or or I've watched, they put together some really cool behind the scenes documentary style videos you should go check out. But um, it was sort of like, this is a girly games company that was making, was it Killzone? Is that right? Yeah, Killzone. And it was sort of just like tired sequels. They were just, you know, it's that Sony wants the sequels, Mm -hmm. make the money. and I. I, I don't know who was the driving force of like, we want a new property or something, but I the way they always present it in these behind the scenes videos is just like everyone wanted to do something new and fresh and really put their all into it as creatives.
2: It wouldn't after that? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and like they talk about there being like, everyone can bring ideas to the table and present it to everyone. It, it felt very collaborative, very like group driven of like consensus of all of the creatives like making the choices together. Um, so I'm really curious, obviously, that I love that first game and the sequel is right around the corner. So I'm really curious if this is just going to be a copy of the first game and not much new or innov- innovative, um, or if this second game is going to be, give me everything I love about the first, but keep it fresh. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> Which leads us into our case study. So this is the fun part. We actually talk about games now. So, okay, Brian, I want to give you the floor because this is kind of what kicked this whole thing off is you made a comment about Super Mario Bros. 3 and it being a masterpiece of video game history. So first of all, you need to defend that statement. (laughs) Not that I'm going to try to to argue with you but tell us why and then if you are able to give us some context around like the game that came before and after like how does it fit into everything in terms of sequel
1: year was 1995 <laughs> was it 95 <95? laughs> no, no idea. The internet it was like 93 or something 88 Nin- 88 what North America was f-
0: 1990
1: oh we got oh, it okay. two years later okay Oh. So it only counts. It came America, out. A, it like. came out a year. It came out a year before Super Nintendo, Super Mario World. Uh, interesting. I in I
3: can
1: cut all that out. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it in. <laughs> Super Mario Brothers 3 is a masterpiece. First and foremost, because I played it when I was like five or six years old, and any game that you play at that age is like the best game ever made. What I think is interesting about it as a sequel to the original Mario Brothers game. Um, Wait, can I? Yes. So why are we skipping
3: over Super Mario Bros. 2?
1: So as far as I know, uh, that was supposed to be a totally different game. And with the success of Mario Brothers, they just reskinned uh, the players and just kind of made it a Mario game just to ride the coattails of that. So it's not technically considered like an actual sequel to mario even though it is kind of like incorporated in the mario family now three was a much more intentional follow-up to the mario brothers game Mm -hmm. it feels definitely much closer to the first game than the second game mechanically and uh, villain sprites all of that they did a major overhaul of the graphics they added an overworld which was awesome you could go backwards in the game they kept everything about the original one. Same power-ups exist. They add new ones, but the core ones are just as, like, vital. It's not, you know, the the fire plant isn't obsolete because of the Tanuki suit or whatever. Uh, it feels bigger yet more, like, accessible. The first game is, like, super intimidating because it feels like an arcade game that you're going to have to play through in one setting to really, like accomplish anything was the save feature available for the first one yeah so you could actually save the game which is amazing you could go and i think you could replay levels they did add some stuff that ended up not staying with the franchise like the cards and some of the the power-ups but and you know what i'm thinking about it now we were talking about sequels like cloning those new Super Mario games that came out for the Wii and Wii U, those are terrible. And the, the and the second one was exactly the same as the first one.
3: I will shout this from the rooftops. Those games are trash. <laughs> like, I play them and they're serviceable. Yeah. But like, yeah, relative to the first Mario game, in terms of innovation and accessibility, all the features that you're talking about, Super Mario Bros. 3 is a sincere upgrade that keeps all the things at work and like adds new, exciting things. And it's just like, where did that go? Yeah. I feel like, I I feel like the, from the first to the third, there's a lot of consistent talent carry over there from like the game director, composer, a lot of same people kind of working on it, but didn't have as much success as maybe Nintendo had going into the Wii Mm -hmm kind of like relaunch of the whole uh, 2D version of Mario. And I wonder if that kind of muddies the water so much that we end up with something that's not as exciting or...
2: I wonder if it was like, you know, everybody's so amped up and everything, you know, after the first one, it's like, oh yeah, we'll just, you know, we'll make a, you know, another one. It'll be great and all that kind of stuff. And then they made it and they're like, oh, And then because, you know, they made the first one, which was so iconic in the NES, and it was a pinnacle moment in gaming history. The passion for what would become the third Super Mario Brothers kind of reinvigorated. That is like the second one flopped. And they're like, "No, we gotta, we gotta rethink this." And then,
1: yeah. So I, I think too. I, I might have sounded like an idiot at the beginning of the podcast because I keep agreeing with what Jesse said about like reinventing things and bringing in all the new stuff. I think that one of the reasons why I like Super Mario Brothers 3 so much is because it does retain so much and the Mario franchise like always bugs me a little bit when you have Mario 64 whoa, and then you have Mario Sunshine and they just changed too much in my opinion. Not that I don't have fun with Mario Sunshine, but like I have a waterproof, pack now and like Mario Odyssey, like I have this hat thing and it never feels like you get like a good, honest sequel in the same way that you have from Mario Brothers to Mario Brothers 3. They
0: feel more like sequels to 3D, the 3D Mario
1: 64. In a way, but I almost want that somewhere in the middle. Like I want to be in the castle and like going to different worlds and like... The hats and stuff like that would be fun. Have I you guess. played Galaxy? Galaxy was difficult for me. I got motion sick <laughs> oh, <with> No, because
0: <laughs> I feel like that was the closest, yeah, to the original. Like I yeah. actually felt excited about that one, but I, I agree. It's like, you know, I, I do want the, the same thing that the previous game got me into the franchise for. I just need the new additions to mesh well, right. That's what it is. It's like, feel like natural add-ons and yeah. not
3: forced. So Sunshine might be my favorite Mario game. Oh. Which is so- sounds like it's your least. No, it's not.
1: I, I enjoy it. It's just, it always feels so weird to me. Like mechanically, it doesn't feel like a Mario game. You're so reliant on this water pack that you are never using any other game that it's just, I, I would still like to be able to run around and like jump on people and get firepower or something like that.
3: Yeah, it is very different. It's almost like they have like this dimension break where it's like as soon as you add another dimension, everything has to have a gimmick. You yes.
1: Know?
3: <laughs> so, George, you want to introduce the next case study? Mm. As our resident, one of our resident experts, we have two in the room.
2: The franchise mesh to end all franchise meshes. talk about Super Smash Brothers.
3: Yeah. Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Ready? Go! Yeah,
2: Yeah, it's a very classic thing of you've got a very diverse player base because it is a fighting game. So you have very hardcore players and then you have the casual players. And as I've said before, Super Smash Brothers is great because... It's not your Street Fighter or your um, Soul Calibur or Tekken or stuff where it doesn't require these complex button combinations to you know play the game, but it is complex in the pacing of it. And uh, same kind of thing as uh, Smash Bros. The original. I don't even think there was any franchise crossover. I think it was just um, it was core to Nintendo, but it wasn't until Melee before they. No, it wasn't even Melee. Melee was still all Nintendo based. And then it was Brawl when they started introducing other characters from mm-hmm. other franchises where you had Sonic and Snake. Snow Gear, Snake. And so, great example of just iteration after iteration getting better and better and more tighter. Although, depending on who you ask, that's not exactly true.
1: Yeah, why don't you ask me? <laughs> Brian, what do you think about <laughs> What's that? your favorite? What's your favorite one, Brian? My favorite? Uh, Hmm, that's a tricky question. I thought, isn't Melee your favorite? So I'm of the camp that I loved the original one and I felt like a lot was lost in Melee, even though, like, gameplay wise, I had more fun playing it. Aesthetically, like, I hate how many characters there are. I hate the crossovers. I hate the, like, people with swords fighting. Kirby, Um, like I love seeing like Mario and Donkey Kong and Kirby battle each other. But when you bring in like Street Fighter and all of this stuff, I'm like, you could have two separate games, and you could have one that's more like of those players, and then keep the like cartoony Nintendo
3: people together. That's just me. They need a completely separate game for Fire Emblem. It's Fire Emblem. Right, exactly.
0: I, I put this on here because I think this is such a good example of a series that like they don't deviate that much. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like you're saying, they throw threw in so many characters, so many new items, so many maps, but like someone who's probably played the original or melee if they hopped into the latest and ultimate, would it be the exact same setup.
1: Do you know what was lost in the first one? You had the concept that these were little puppet toys and that's where the hand came from.
3: Yes. And it was
1: this whole like playful thing of like, what if you just put all these things in a storybook together and they all fought each other and melee, like I think since melee it's been consistent. Uh, of, of how it feels. A mm, little bit more serious. Extremely serious. Yeah. Like
3: crazy
0: melodramatic. Right. <laughs> they kept the, the little statue thing. And I, I entered the series, well, with Melee, but Brawl was probably the one I played the most growing up. But like, I don't know if you remember that intro, but like, they had the little statues oh, yeah. thrown in with the arena and like the operatic voice. <laughs>
1: like, I'm
0: not even going to try to
1: mimic it. But like, it's oh, in my Oh, come on. Head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do it. <laughs>
0: It's like we're gonna be serious about our toys now. <laughs> and like now yeah. the latest uh, <laughs> the latest cutscenes and stuff in Ultimate are just like the hand of God is mm-hmm. he- no it's been destroyed. They destroyed yes. the hand, so yep. now it's like some seven winged angel in the sky <laughs> with yeah. one giant eye. <laughs> Yeah.
2: You got it. You got to raise the stakes.
0: Yeah, the, uh, my, the tone has changed a little
2: bit. Yeah, my
1: daughter, she's uh, four. She calls that game Kirby Survives because she watches that intro. <laughs> <And> she's like <laughs> mesmerized. Like, how did Kirby survive all of that? That is awesome.
3: But yeah, it's it's the sequel that keeps begetting. Bigger and greater, but bigger, is greater. That- but
2: the mechanics are the same, and I yeah. think you made a good point, uh, Brian, too, of just the fact that Kirby goes hand in hand with all of these other people that are two, three, four, ten times his <laughs> size, and you can still hold your own. That's yeah, pretty. That's a I think a cool testament just to Mr. Sakurai. Um, somehow, through all of those characters, all the items, all the maps, ba- making some sort of balance. Yeah.
0: Well, whether or not you like the aesthetic, putting like Final Fantasy Cloud with a mm-hmm. giant ass sword right <laughs> up next to Kirby is very
1: much a kids. I'm bringing my Gundam, and you're bringing your Barbie. That's true. <laughs> I can't. I can't say they're not fun. I love all of those games.
3: Okay, so we've talked. We've we're all warmed up. We talked about some Mario. We talked about some Smash. Now it's time for the big one. We're talking about... So I wanted to quickly kick things off with Majora's Mask. I'm sure we all have heard this story, but very quickly. So Majora's Mask is the direct sequel to Ocarina of Time. Ocarina of Time is the franchise break into 3D, and it was incredibly successful. And so the story goes something like they needed a follow up. And the initial idea was to let's just remix what we already have and re-release and make money. But the person who had been working on Ocarina of Time in terms of like level design and dungeons and stuff was like, that sounds incredibly boring. So what if we did something a little bit more ambitious than that? But they had some established boundaries for what was possible. So they had a year for development and they knew it would be on the same engine and reuse assets. And so within that, it's like, if you can do something in a year that's more interesting and bigger in scope, like go for it. So they did. And there was this whole idea. I think the vision for it came first, which is in terms of sequel is so interesting to me. So there was this idea that was inspired by a movie. And it's this kind of... You repeat the same day over and over again. And as you repeat it, the world is revealed to you. And so they knew that they were going to do this like repetition type thing. And they knew that the scope would be limited, but that they could kind of like have repeat content in there as a way of creating a lengthier game, which sounds like a cop out, but obviously makes for a very interesting game because I think a lot of people remember Majora's Mask pretty fondly. I don't know that it necessarily like translates super well to modern gamer expectations, but it is a great game. And the fact that it was accomplished within a year, this whole like desire to kind of like have a greater scope for it and everything is like massive payoff rather than just Ocarina of Time Remix. And so the fact that they found success in that to me is like an incredible testament to that team and like I don't know, I just think it's really remarkable. And then There is the bastard child. Everyone who knows Zelda as a household name now knows it through a not Zelda game.
0: (laughs) This is so frustrating to me. As a, as a Zelda fan, how many people are fucking in love with Breath of the Wild as a Zelda game? <laughs> it is not a Zelda game. It's barely a Zelda game. I I would not categorize it. like. And I, you mentioned this, Brian, about being afraid for the sequel. Me too. <laughs> because I'm really afraid that because of the success of Breath of the Wild, which I love playing the game, it was fun. I just, it didn't feel like Zelda. Yeah. I'm really afraid that it's going to pivot the franchise permanently
1: yeah if not permanently just yeah I think this is one instance where I don't want just another clone that game is so big and I just played it for the second time which is lots of fun but if you just throw everything up into the air and you're doing like the same kind of thing like I I want my Zelda dungeons back mm-hmm. I want some of the Classic like narrative stuff.
0: Yeah. It's it was so hard. I, I remember we had like a long conversation probably on a previous podcast about this, but like what makes a Zelda game a Zelda game? And maybe I'm being a little bit hypocritical because like you just said with Ocarina of Time, it changed the franchise pretty drastically and they stuck with that until Breath of the Wild. But I just feel like Breath of the Wild they didn't take what was best from older games. They just rebuilt the structure to mimic and they start they redefined newer gameplay, like open world. They did. I'll give them that, that sort of go wherever you want mentality, the survival crafting, they like including the physics like that was
1: defining. It's it's so much fun, but it doesn't feel like a Zelda Mm -hmm. game for sure.
0: Like, yeah, you do trip over a chest or a puzzle or an enemy camp, like every corner you turn and you're creating your own story. But like, to me, the classic Zelda formula is like it's it's the hero's journey, essentially, it, because yeah. it's structured like some people call it the hallway. I don't I would say it's a giant hallway. I want to call it. It's not that linear, but like it is a structured, linear story. And they they carefully place the dungeons, mm-hmm. the the chests with the special power-ups or tools, like, yeah. with the story. So, like, they all work in tandem and they support each other and, like, by the end, you you feel like a hero that's gone from, like, farm boy to hero. Like, I don't know, there's just that feeling that in Breath of the Wild, like, you could completely skip all of the memories that give you any story and, like, it just, it felt like they just put a skin on top of a new game. It's like, yeah, you have a hero called Link and there's all the... When there's Ganon.
3: <laughs>
0: there's familiar races and locations, but I don't know. I just that that DNA felt gone. Yeah.
2: I feel a little bit differently about it.
0: Yeah, go. Cool. We don't want to all be about the same thing.
2: <laughs> I didn't really grow up playing the older Zelda games. Mm-hmm. The only two games that I like really, really played are Breath of the Wild and uh, Twilight Princess. I love Twilight Prince. Yeah, Twilight <laughs> Prince is really good. I um,
1: love and that's a great spiritual it. sequel to Ocarina of
2: Time yes, in my opinion.
1: It is. Yes, it is.
2: But like to me, it's not having had that, I thought it was a fantastic game. I couldn't tell you that, oh, they took too much out of, you know, what felt like was a Zelda game. But to me it's a Zelda game.
1: I think Breath of the Wild did a good enough job of putting in the like classic Zelda things that you recognize in there. I do think you could easily reskin it, which says something about the DNA of the game that it's just so far removed because you don't go into like deep caves and huge dungeons at all. That's probably my
0: biggest wish for the sequel is that even if they want to keep the like the smaller shrine puzzles all over the place, Mm -hmm. like they had the four giant beasts i they were so much shorter than i thought
1: they'd Exactly. Be. i want
0: i want like hub dungeons that maybe are tied to story like i i would appreciate that
1: i'm not opposed to a twilight princess style dungeon that's so complex i have to look up online <laughs> where the hell i am cuz i'm so lost <laughs>
2: while i did enjoy twilight princess i don't think i enjoyed it as much not having come from previous games where yeah. it's like i'm forced into a very linear you know version i have to do these things i have to absolutely beat this puzzle a very specific way mm-hmm. or i can't progress and i feel like breath of the wild allowed myself and other people that you know maybe aren't in that particular style, a fan of those very tight knit, you know, puzzles you have to do it a very specific way and kind of opened up the playbook, so to speak for other people who maybe wanted to get into Zelda, but just really couldn't get into that.
0: Yeah. It's definitely for a specific type of player and it's a definitely an older school way of playing. I think my fear is like, I, I love the breath of wild was so much fun for me to play, but I'm, I'm afraid I'm never going to be able to play, you know, the type of Zelda game I love again. <laughs>
2: Is there space for maybe bringing both of those together?
0: I don't know. Like you were, we were talking earlier about you know so many franchises once they go 3D, they have the the 2D games that released and the 3D games yeah, that release. Right. Like I I can't see Nintendo doing that with Zelda, but
2: or could they sprinkle a little bit of that uh, Mario Odyssey uh, action and do a bit of both?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I said, I'm a hypocrite because the gameplay changed back in um, Ocarina time. But I don't know, even the older games pre-Ocarina of Time and post-Ocarina of Time sort of felt similar because of the story structure and the linearness of it.
3: I think for me personally, regardless of how reality works and what's realistic to expect, what I would really hope for in Breath of the Wild 2 is that we kind of get the expanded scope, the fun physics, the kind of emergent gameplay that can happen in Breath of the Wild 2 stick with us, which based on the way that things are going in terms of the content that we've seen so far, it seems like that's actually pretty realistic, but I would love to contain all of that stuff rather than a strict hallway. It's kind of like we go down a hallway and then we get a big open space that has a lot of do things in whatever order you please, have fun with the physics sandbox in order to solve puzzles so they don't have to be so specific and you can have fun with it that way rather than having the shrines in the overworld, have a full dungeon, but keep all of the gameplay mechanic stuff that is so fun in Breath of the Wild.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you see the trailer, like Zelda falling down a pit and something happens with Link's arm. It would be cool if there was like a linear story that instead of like trying to like figure out what happened a hundred years ago and Calamity Gannon's just sitting over here waiting for you. If there's like uh, an actual, like there's some agency, like you were saying the hero's journey and Mm -hmm. like, you have to do this, then this, then this, I can't imagine they're going to do that though.
0: They're going to, I mean, optimistically, I, I feel I feel like they didn't do the strong story in Breath of the Wild because they were so focused on, on this world. new yeah. way of playing it. Like maybe now that they have that a little bit under wrap, like they, they understand it maybe a little bit more, maybe now they can focus their energies towards how do we incorporate this awesome story and story and Lori, story and lore.
2: That's a that's a good story. Lori and story. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best of both.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I don't know about you all, but I love sequels that like give new meaning to yeah. the, the stories that came before. I would love that. Like that's part of the reason I love Zelda is like, you know, you're getting the little bits here and there of right. references to old games. Um,
2: I don't know how much y'all have delved into what the prospects of, Breath of the Wild 2.0 is going to be. Is it a prequel? Is that what they were saying that it's going to be like it was before the She's just event. doomed. The oh, event. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think it's all just people guessing from the trailer because like the way Link looks in the trailer sort of looks a little bit like the mural of the hero from 10,000 years ago or whatever. So, I think some people in the fandom are guessing like, "Oh, it's going to be sort of simultaneous current
3: sequel and prequel, but it's just guess time travel confirmed. Does that mean at the end of Breath of the Wild 2, he gets into the
1: <laughs> he gets the into tub, the it sleep? To- <laughs> it's like Halo.
2: Even with that like first teaser that they made, it kind of makes me feel like maybe it is going back, and maybe they woke up Ganon <laughs> in this mysterious cave Ganon or whatever, dwarf. and that's what kind of yeah. triggered everything.
0: I mean. Time travel is not new to the Zelda franchise, so... Also, floating structures are not new to the Zelda franchise.
2: But did you have a parachute that you could just parachute down and (laughs) glide around?
0: (laughs) So, we sort of wanted to open it up to everyone. Are there any sequels that y'all wish would be made? Or sequels that, like, almost were there, just... Didn't didn't do it all the
3: way or... I think, uh, so we're talking like any games now? Yeah. Okay. So it's a little bit, for me personally, it's too little too late because you waited for multiple decades to pull through on this and you kind of flubbed it with your new IP. But I was really hoping that Rare would get the funding in correct circumstances to do a third Banjo game. (laughs) A proper one. And I don't think it's ever going to happen, which is like tears. I did really, really enjoy the ukulele 2D kind of like Donkey Kong Country type thing that they did. But it will forever be so sad to me. It was just such a nice trajectory. They had Banjo-Kazooie and then they had Banjo-Tooie and it was like and nothing.
2: (laughs) Holds a special place in your heart. It does. They are actually making a sequel. I don't know if it'll be a perfect sequel. It's been 20 years Homeworld 3 is coming I don't even like RTS games Or any like heavy strategy games But that game Franchise signed me up And we could go all about like what they are or aren't doing but that's something that I really hope that because it is a True iteration it's not a spinoff or anything Like that I'm really really hoping that They you know hit a home run with it From the little that they've uh, Shared it, it looks like it Could potentially do that but it's still too early to say When did Homeworld 2 come out? 2003 is when this game came out. So if it comes out next year.
0: 20 year anniversary. 20
2: year anniversary. That would be pretty cool. Because they've already been, I think they announced it because Gearbox is publishing it. They announced it in either 2019 or 2018. The little teaser. And uh, they did something that's really, really unique. They... Did a what would be kind of considered for like a video game of like a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter kind of thing, where you could go and invest in, even though I'm assuming they kind of had funding secured for the game, but you could even still go in and invest uh, and you would get different tiered prizes for how much you invested in the game. And they're doing periodical updates on the development of the game from mechanics to uh, lore to. Music. I mean, everything. You're kind of getting a front row seat on how it's shaping.
3: I love when they spend the effort to do that kind of stuff because it's so hype. Like for a fan, that that's so awesome. Yeah. Hmm. Any
0: any wishes?
3: Ski. Another ski
1: game. Remember ski? The bottomless snowman would eat you. What is that? (laughs) Are you all too young for this? Back in my day, we played computer games. like ski
3: oh my gosh i do remember this. ski
1: free oh ski free that's my fault for not giving it the right name ski free
2: i've never heard yeah. of this
1: you just ski down a mountain and the bottomless snowman will eventually eat you oh
3: okay i, this.
1: I gotta put this
0: on
3: the yeah. website
1: for reference so people understand <laughs> the majesty of this
2: <laughs> it's beautiful yeah it's like uh, microsoft paint
1: for whatever reason, my grandmother had more computer games than I did growing up. She had her computer always, always loaded with these weird PC games, Pitfall and Ski and Rodents Revenge and puzzle games and stuff. Anyway, uh, I was racking my brain trying to think of a sequel missing in my life. You know what I miss is SimCity. I wish that they just make a good Sim City game. Don't make it online. I want two thousand or three thousand, and l- give me my jazz music, and give me all the cheat codes in the world, and let me pause time, and let me just build an ultimate city. That's what I want.
0: I just like a Sim sequel that doesn't have like twenty twenty dollar DLC packs. Like right. The whole experience. That'd be nice.
1: Yeah.
2: You just got to get into that uh, Game Pass subscription that you don't have to worry about. (laughs)
0: Apparently. Game Pass would go broke if they did that with Sims in it.
2: (laughs) Something that I was triggered, I don't know why this is correlated in my brain, but um, when you were talking about Ski Free... It triggered a recent memory of an article that I found uh, about a survival horror game where uh, you have a evil uh, train that is trying to kill you. It's like the the train's name is Charlie. Yes, Choo Choo Charles. That's what <laughs> it is. Choo Choo Charles. It is oh, horrifying, sentient, bloodthirsty
0: train. Oh no.
2: Yeah, nightmare that's
0: nightmare
1: fuel. Um, oh, no.
2: <laughs> when you said Boogeyman, I, that's what went into my... Yeah.
0: For our yes. listeners, this is a train with a very creepy face, giant spider legs growing out of it.
1: Yeah, it's... Something that a twisted metal nightmares. black. Oh.
0: Okay, we know where your brain's at. <laughs>
3: if we're talking about... Uh, sequels and prequels and stuff Uh, Eastwards that came out last year was like I love that game and it came out of nowhere I would love to get a prequel to that but like a prequel that goes thousands of years prior to the story that they told because they did a really good job with lore and world building and stuff and I want to know like some origin things how did we get there nice
0: I feel lucky I'm getting all the sequels I want not a horizon uh (laughs) Honestly, and I think this is coming, so it's not like a, it's never going to happen thing, but I want a Xenoblade 3 that combines Xenoblade 1 and 2, because Xenoblade 2 was not a, it was a spiritual sequel, it wasn't a direct sequel, but there's definitely lots of things at the end that connected it to the first game, so I like, I want the the perfect mashup of like, two of my favorite games.
3: Now it's Rhyme time! Well, isn't there some legitimate rumor material going around about oh yeah 23? yeah there is so. it's gonna
0: happen have mm. faith. they're just gonna randomly drop in and be like release next year just like zelda 2 is gonna be mm. randomly dropped like it's gonna be released in three months
2: maybe <laughs> maybe a metroid prime 4 too
0: okay please. well you know that's happening <laughs> i don't know when it's happening every time
2: happening. i go like when i like search anything about it the top like uh uh, autofill thing that comes up Is Metroid Prime 4 cancelled No uh, It's yeah No, Because it's just been so long And we have not heard a peep yeah. Out of that Except that small little announcement Because we've only had Two pieces of news about it The little graphic intro That they did For There's that a graphic. E3 They
0: put graphic money Towards a
3: George Come and on And then
2: <laughs> When Nintendo got up and said We're restarting <laughs>
3: I think that's so interesting in this greater conversation because it sounds like their quality expectations are determining the trajectory of the development. So it's like going back to that document we are talking about at the beginning, the game design document, it sounds like that's a living document that gets altered as things develop and you run into things that you learn, you kind of adapt as you go. But it makes me wonder for like a situation like that, is it, you know, where was the kind of thing where it fell apart where they like to totally scrap a project that's pretty significant
2: well maybe never know but maybe in you know maybe three years after it is released we'll get some behind the scenes footage of it of the making of the Metroid Prime 4 because that's (laughs) yeah what
0: makes what makes a company completely say we need to restart
2: (laughs) I'm kind of curious for you Jesse being uh the PlayStation person in the room yeah did you ever play Shadow of the Colossus
1: I did. I love that game.
2: That Wonderful is a game, game that I would actually be very interested in seeing. Now, they did do the the remaster, but I would be very interested in seeing a sequel or prequel to it.
1: Well, there not there a prequel-ish game? There was, it it was There was Ico, Ico, then Shadows of Colossus, then that was Last Guardian or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. And then I stopped myself because I knew that they had come out with that one game. But something about Shadows of Colossus was
2: man,
0: it's like it's that mystery box. Yeah, it's that they didn't they didn't even fully reveal everything at the end. You sort of have to.
1: That was a good example of it felt open world like Breath of the Wild, but there was a linear narrative to there it. There was, yeah.
2: Ah, uh, that was such a. Good- I haven't even like really, even like really played the games, but I just know that there is such a love for that game, mm-hmm. and just the little that I've seen of like. Uh, gameplay videos and all that from both the remaster and the original is just like, wow, this is a really interesting world.
0: Yeah. No, I would play a, another sequel of that in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I don't know with the last guardian, I think I, I didn't play it, but I, I got the sense that it was like too much. Yeah, Like, I don't know the mystery, the bareness, almost the mystery of, of shadow was so good. I'm like, you don't need to, give us that much more just a little bit
1: yeah exactly <laughs>
0: yeah well George uh, this is probably going to happen but would you be interested in a Fallen Order Jedi sequel
2: oh 100% yeah prequel or sequel or yeah. make them both maybe like first part is prequel and then like <laughs> a second part is sequel I would love that I feel like there's do so whatever much- you want respawn Dude, there's my so much money is in your hands
0: yeah that's great
2: oh Titanfall that would have been another from Respawn that I would have really liked to have a sequel, and people keep asking, but they're like, "No, we're doing our little Apex Legends kind of thing, so you can wait your turn."
3: Which to me, that seems like a hundred percent a business decision to yeah. have that, like, yeah, that model of game. Uh, are we gonna get a Dust Stranding too? Probably wouldn't be called that, knowing Kojima, but maybe
0: he'll make a game that doesn't seem like a sequel, and then you play the last five minutes of it and. Whoa, mine. F- it actually is
3: a sequel. Yeah.
2: So, he's working on something. <laughs> Don't know what. Uh,
3: George, earlier you mentioned Borderlands 3. Is there something you wanted to mention there? No,
2: nah, I mean, uh, going back to the whole, you know, case study of like uh, reinventing the wheel but not really reinventing the wheels like I a lot of people I think wish that the third one pushed it further than what it did because they played it very safe. And it also had been a very long time since we had from two to three. That's the other thing too, is like all of these sequels and everything, or even prequels of all these franchises are taking like 20 years before somebody wants to make another one. Now I get it, nostalgia factor and all that. But like, where are my good sequels that happen like just two years after?
0: Games are too big now to get it done in two years. It's just... The only reason like Call of Duty does it is because they have three different studios working simultaneously on a game. It's like they cycle through. <laughs> yeah.
3: So, Brian, what's the final word? How do you make a Super Mario Bros. 3? How does it happen?
1: I don't know that you can anymore
3: because
1: everything In the mario franchise has to have a gimmick if you're talking about mario specifically but with and i guess with any game like if you are dependent on throwing a hat as like your gimmicky thing if you make a direct sequel it's going to be like what jesse was saying and it's going to not feel innovative enough and if you lose the hat then it's not gonna feel like a great sequel i don't know
2: Gotta have my cutesy sidekick, Brian, that I can sell merch. Oof.
3: Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. The world may never know. Is it like how many licks does it take to get to the middle of a tootsie? Three.
2: Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for hanging out and we'll see you next time.